0: We're going to pivot to John chapter 8, we're going to look at Christ um, and listen to him. Y'all have uh, heard me more than once give a shout out to James Christakis for leading uh, our financial peace university. We have the last week of that um, today, and it's been really cool. Um, A really good time for our church and a handful of families to learn what it is to take money, that's such a complex thing, such a complicated thing, and look at it in a redeemed light, and look at it in view of the gospel. And a big thing James does when he's up there in the class, there's a lot of comparisons. So you got Tom and Sally, and they buy a house that's too, that they can't afford, and they buy a boat, and they go into a bunch of debt, and they don't save any money. And then you have Bill and Sue, and they buy, uh, you know, just a, a more average house and older cars, and they save, and you, know, you get to see a timeline and a projection, so it's these comparisons. If these people start out here, these people start out here. Where will they get to? So that's, that's what it looks like up there in financial peace um, with James, and we get to see these outcomes, and that'll be kind of how we approach today's passage. We'll see two people approach Jesus differently, and we'll see them leave with different outcomes, and the only difference will be, um, even though the scale is not just instantly visible in some of our uh, analogies up the hill with the financial matters, um, you can kind of guess the people that are living extravagant, living large early are not going to end up as good as the people that live within their means. And it's kind of the opposite, seemingly, at face value as we look today. And as we look at the economy of the kingdom of God in the reality that there are a lot of paradoxes A lot of things that seemingly don't make sense. Um, A lot of things that um, Jesus will say, like, you have to die to live. Um, You have to become a servant to find freedom. And today in John 8, we'll see Jesus kind of apply and epitomize a paradox he drops on the Jewish leaders in Matthew's gospel when he says, whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted And we're going to see a squad of big-shot church people, um, very clean, seemingly at face value on the hunt to purge the world of evil, and they'll bring Jesus, a woman that is bad news, that has been caught cheating. She's been caught in the act, and they will come to Jesus full of goodness, kind of on a righteous purpose, but they will leave sinful and ashamed. And on the flip side, we'll see a woman guilty, in custody, hopelessly convicted, leave free and clear, having truly met Jesus, truly beheld Jesus, and we'll see ourselves in both. And we'll see the comparison end way better for this woman who seemingly enters into Jesus in a humiliated state. Um, So I'm excited for us to do that. I'm not going to spend a ton of time on this disclaimer, but I want to give it. There's a disclaimer that I owe you for this passage. If you'll notice it, depending on what version you have, you might see some big brackets or a big note um, around John chapter 8. It's actually the last verse of 7 through 8, 11. You'll see a lot of notes saying that this, um, to the best of our knowledge, was not a part of the most early Greek manuscripts of the Gospel of John. Um, so, in fact, most New Testament scholars agree that this is not original, that it's actually a later edition, perhaps 200 years, 300 years later, and we're not really sure why. Um, there's a lot of suggestions that this might have been, you know, something seen, a very real event that people saw and were like, man, well, that, that really needs to be in there. We're going to get it in there. We're not really sure how it happened. It's important to note that most people will agree that this Is not original. It's kind of convincing if you read the end of seven and going into what we'll do next week. This story seems like a random, just little, just punch in between a flow of thought. But in that, one, it has survived centuries of textual criticisms, has remained in the copy of the Bible that we hold. Secondly, and most importantly, it upholds and communicates things that are true about Jesus and his kingdom. This doesn't present any out-of-left-field, off-the-wall material that would contradict the rest of Scripture. And three, it shows beautiful things about Jesus. So I can't tell you definitively that this happened. Um, I can tell you that it wasn't part of the earliest manuscripts um, of the Gospel of John. But I can tell you that it un- un- just unpacks some really true, beautiful things about how Jesus approaches us and our condition in that. With confidence, we're going to teach it and go for it. So in that, I'm going to read it. It's short, John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. Um, I'm going to read it. I'm going to pray again, and we'll look at it together. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they may have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground, and as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. encounter someone who shares far more in common with us than we might initially think. Be with us. We're going to do three things. First, we're going to look at the Pharisees. So look at kind of the Pharisee's interaction with Jesus. Secondly, we're going to look at this woman's interaction with Jesus. And then thirdly, kind of take things out of both of those that um, out of the many things we could apply and kind of walk with, we're going to look at those kind of by themselves. So first, I want us to listen to these Pharisees, and if you'll remember, these are the kind of Jewish leadership, the religious leaders, the point people, as far as applying what it looks like to follow God among the community here. So Jesus is teaching, and if you'll remember, he um, originally was not going up to this context or this feast, but ends up going. He's teaching, so he would be sitting on the ground in the temple. The people would be gathered around standing, listening to him talk, and they interrupt him, Best we can tell, they bust up probably through this crowd of people and they're probably dragging this woman that they have caught in adultery. And they tell Jesus, We caught this woman, not just we heard about her, we caught her in the act, adultery. And they say, Our law, your law, says that we should stone her, bury her, waste down in the ground, and kill her with rocks, is what that means. So that's what the law says. But what do you say? I think it's important to understand this context. If we remember Easter, we looked at the crucifixion, um, we looked at the resurrection, but before that looked at the crucifixion, we got to remember that um, Jerusalem is occupied by Rome. So as far as legal authority, Rome is the boss. So even when the Jews wanted to kill Jesus, they have to go through the Roman governor. They have to go through Pilate to get permission. So understanding that context, it's probably... Um, just not a thing that anybody has been stoned for adultery in a long time because it was illegal under the Roman rule for that to happen. So even though it was a law in place for the Jews, under the Roman occupation, they were not allowed to carry out this punishment. So probably very likely that adultery was running rampant all over the place and people were not suffering this sentence for it. So we see these Jewish leaders bring her, and even if we don't question the motives, what we see is some people bring someone else's sin to Christ's attention. They, they bring her in and say, look at her, look what she's done. And they do that in a place that is not guilty. They're not guilty, she's guilty. They're handling a guilty person. And John goes ahead and kind of spills their motives in verse 6 and says they did this to test Jesus. They're trying to catch Jesus. In other words, this is not about the woman. And if we really look at it closely, if we go by the law, it actually calls for the the woman and the man to die. It takes two, last time I checked, and we see them just bring the woman, these Pharisees, just simply out to trap Jesus in an age-old debate that still confronts our heart and mind. How can God be just and fair and true and also be merciful and compassionate at the same time? And they think there's no way he can get around this. If he stones her, then he loses his mercy and his grace and his compassion that he showed during his earthly ministry, and we got him. If he wants her to go free, then he loses his truth and commitment to the word of who he calls his father. There's no way he can get around this, is what they seem to think as they bring him. They come in pride. They come in arrogance. They come in malice. They're feeling clean. They're feeling strong. And before we see Jesus respond to these people that we said before we started, John, we love to hate these guys. I want us to see ourselves here and see ourselves in this attitude. Self righteousness, pride, comes up a lot in us if we will pay attention. Honestly, the root to more of the things that we do in opposition to what God calls us to than we like to admit. We love a scapegoat. We generally enjoy watching other people get in trouble since the first grade. As long as it's not us and it's somebody else, there's a relief that comes when we get to look at somebody else's sin and not ours in our culture now. You know, filmed, recorded, screenshot, whatever things that end people forever, there's generally a sense of relief when we see that happening around us and it's not us. Society in general. Even in our own interpersonal relationships, in our marriage, when our spouse does something wrong, we love to point at it and look at it. All those things because it distracts us from our condition, and our wrong, and our sin. And I'm all for accountability and us creating a culture of that, but asking us to look in at the reality that is unfortunately true, that we generally love being on the other side of accusation, watching it instead of receiving it because... It's a distraction from our sin. distraction from our brokenness. Gossip, I think, is a manifest example of, of how this happened. Even before it gets malicious, us talking about other people is just easy. It, it comes to mind. We're in a, a social setting, we're not really sure what to say. Just unfortunately, in honesty, what comes to mind is being able to talk about other people and when it edges into talking about their failures and their brokenness and their shortcomings. There's just something in us, in our brokenness, that enjoys that way too much. And it's because it's their brokenness, and it's not mine, and it's not yours. The same reason you whip a rental car around really hard, because it's not yours. And you get to give it back. When we get to talk about other people's shortcomings and failures, it is easier, it exposes an attitude that's just like these Pharisees, that, that we parade people up to Jesus too much. And hear Jesus humble These that would exalt themselves against the sin of other people. You can find 400 YouTube videos trying to speculate about what Jesus wrote in the dirt with his finger. We're We're just not sure what he wrote. What he says, though, is he actually appeals to the law. So in Deuteronomy, the law would call the witness of the act to throw the first stone at this woman. So he says, all right, let's do this. You who are without sin, throw the first stone. And he doesn't say anything else. He bends back down in the ground. And He just lets them sit in this, and he lets conscience and conviction do what it does. And you see the older, it says the older ones, perhaps they had more to remember. As they recount their failures and shortcomings, they walk away. I have to think the young people probably still not getting it, probably following the older ones around just in mimicking, wanting to be like the leaders that they wanted to garner some respect from. But he lets it be, and this is what's so sad. Even in their seeing, in their walking away, that they are not perfect, they walk away from the one who could do something about it. They walk away from the Christ that is actually the solution to what he has just exposed in them. They walk away. The ones that came clean left ashamed. The accusers left accused. We mentioned a couple weeks ago how tough pride is, how cyclical pride is, and they think they're great. And when the pride is attacked because of their pride, they run and hide from further exposure. The one that could do anything about it is left standing there. We're so prone to go hide because of our pride. Seemingly hopeless looking at guys like these. Seemingly hopeless if we look at ourselves hard enough. But our Jesus is a pride buster. The Apostle Paul was one of these guys. Was just like these guys. And we see him point at the things that they held so dear that, that constructed their pride. And he says, this is garbage compared to the righteousness that only Christ has achieved and that he's called me into by his grace. Listen to him address these Guys, let him address our pride. We're going to let him do that at the end. All right, second thing. I want us to listen to the woman. Look at the woman. So this woman, against her will, meets Jesus in a place of shame and custody and caught in the act of something that would just be socially identifyingly devastating to her. Complete humiliation. And this is in the temple And if it's happening in the context of this feast, there's a lot of people around. This is very much in the public square, and it's not even over what she's done. She's a pawn to some spiritually abusive church people. This is how she meets Jesus. Here's the difference. Here's our comparison, our financial peace comparison. Even after her accusers leave, I have to think if I'm her, I'm running and kind of blending in and going back home. In the temple, she stays. And in the most infant, elementary way that she might know, she knows it's insane to leave this man. That is the Christ. She stays. Losing our life to find it. Humbling those who exalt themselves, but exalting the humble. The most offensive part of the gospel is not only that we're sinners, but that in and of ourselves we can't do anything about it. And accepting that, the ones that get it right, that get to see God through the Christ, are ones that know that they can't in and of their selves. We can't grit, work, fake, persuade our way to him. Only when we're in this space that this woman is in can we hear him. May we hear him. And I want you to hear him hear what he does. He calmly and slowly, like he does all the time, and this is beautiful, this little part. I want you to see it, and I want you to hear it. She's standing by herself, and he stands up with her, this adulteress, that these Pharisees are probably prodding you know, into the crowd with a stick because they couldn't bear being seen or, or touching this unclean woman. The, the, the God-man, God in the flesh, stands up, eye-level with her, gets where she is which points to the miraculous beauty that our God would put on flesh and come be with us inside of all of our funk, inside of all of our sin. We who are unclean and untouchable, God would come and want to be around. He stands up and gets eye level with her and he looks at her and he speaks. Verse 10, where are they? Perhaps she's looking down, probably not looking up, probably not making much eye contact. And I want you to listen to this. He asked her to assess her situation. He asked her to look around and see the status of her accusers. And she sees that no one is around to condemn her. She says, No one, Lord. She sees and she testifies that Christ has removed what was condemning her. Who was condemning her? And then he instructs her, Go, you're free. And he says, From now on, in other words, new beginning. New start. Sin no more. In your freedom from condemnation, may obedience, may a pattern of obedience, may obedience mark your life from this point further, having been freed from condemnation. We think so often, the world thinks so often, it is go, sin no more, and you won't be condemned. And it is the opposite. It's the gospel. Be found Condemned, deserving guilt, punishment, be given life outside of yourself and be sent free from that to obey from a heart standard. May we hear the Christ like this woman. So much in both of those things from both of these sides of this comparison. Um, I'm going to give you three to walk with. What do we do about this? Lastly, three things to kind of walk with. One is get caught. May we put ourselves in a position to get caught often and acknowledging that she's brought by kind of an abusive entity um, against her will. Um, But anyway, these Pharisees walk away in their sin. This adulteress walks away free to sin no more. One changed and one the same. May we let ourselves continually get caught by the person of Jesus through the good graces of time with God and time with his people understanding that our default is to hide or our default is to come into this space, which I love and cherish, which is a a sacred time and space to the Lord. But a lot of us just come into this space and we're like, we're not hiding, we're coming to church. And there's so much more positioning that needs to take place in mind in your life for us to get caught in a way that we see a Christ that has freed us from condemnation. That is daily patterns of sitting still with God. Considering what we've thought, felt in our interactions, situations, in our work, at our house, and be like, God, catch me in my brokenness and in my inability to keep your law perfectly, and let me see and hear you look me in the eyes and free me by your person and work. Putting ourselves around other people in our church family not in a facade way, but in a way where they really can see and point to and address, and we really can see and point to and address, not in judgment of accusation like these Pharisees bring, but in a, a communal effort to be transformed by a power outside of all of us. By the transforming work of the Spirit, may we put ourselves in a position to get caught in our shortfall more often in the face of Christ with time with God, time with His people, Second thing, big thing, see no condemnation. I'm going to explain what that means, what it is to do that, but see no condemnation. May we say, see that he doesn't just say we're forgiven, but the cross actually removes condemnation. I'm a recovering people pleaser. I'm going to go ahead and just tell y'all at one time, when I let you down, I'm sorry. and I'm going to take it a lot harder than, than you take it. But what comes with that is me being annoyingly optimistic. Fran will tell you our house could be on fire, and I'm like, oh, it's good. We're good. Everything's fine. I think a lot of us hear what Paul says in Romans 8, 1. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And we hear Paul or hear Christ tell this woman as an annoying optimist. We're like, yeah, we hear that, but you don't know. You don't know what I've done. You don't know what goes on in here. You don't know what goes on in here. And I want you to see... And here, Jesus tell this woman that knows nothing up to this point, he has her look around and see that the people that were condemning her are gone. By her own testimony, her own admission, she sees that he has removed the condemnation. We have the same ability to see and testify by looking at the cross. Jesus didn't sweep this adultery under the rug. He didn't just blanket say, oh, you're forgiven, and the the guys were still standing there with rocks. He removed the condemnation. So he goes to the cross, and he takes God's anger that we deserve for our sin. He removed it. It's really gone. And he calls us to look at the cross and see that the grounds for us being guilty and shamed and condemned are are, are dealt with. They're not swept under. They're not blanketed. They're not optimized. They've been removed by the cross. There's been action from the cross. He would take a, a full measure of wrath for this adultery, for any sin and brokenness in our life, while hanging, bleeding, and suffocating. Neither do I condemn you, as he says to this woman, is based on action, and it's action that we get to look back at. It's a a fulfilled promise that counts for us. Some of you need to hear, neither do I condemn you. And you need to look at the cross and see that that's a, a real thing that's really been seen about. So some of us need to get caught. Some of us need to see that there's no condemnation. The last thing we need to walk with is some of us need to see and walk in the results. So see and walk in results. May we see that he has done this for real change. The cross answers this question of how God can do justice and fair and mercy and compassion at the same time. And the results of the cross are just as crazy and beautiful. He does obedience. He does what God says for us so that we can actually do it. He does it so that we can. We die to our old nature. We receive a new nature, a new influence. We talked about a couple weeks ago the influence of the Spirit. And it's not just a a pass to to keep the rules and check the box. It's a life-giving way that comes from within us, from a, a, a new motivating factor of the Spirit. This woman, drug in, certainly to be killed, walks away free with life, more obedient than these Pharisees would ever be. Look at obedience to what Jesus says. Maybe it's not, hey, what are the rules? What do I need to do? Maybe it's look at the cross and hear him say, because of that, Go and sin no more out of a a new place. So before we sing, we're going to be quiet like we've done a couple times here lately. But may we let ourselves be caught in our brokenness. That's a thing for all of us. And looking at the cross, why it's necessary. Maybe considering steps we need to take to put ourselves in, in this position more often. To be reminded of who we are but who Christ is, and despite the discrepancy, what he's done about it. Get caught. Secondly, see no condemnation. Look around and see that he's removed your accuser. Some of you need to work that out. And three, maybe it's a reality. You standing before God, you understanding how he has identified you in Christ, and you need to hear him at eye level, whether you say because of that reality in your life, you need to go sin. No more. You need to walk in things that you already have heard, clear things that have already been told to you. In any of those things and in between, may we listen to a compassionate Christ. Get up with us in the face and speak. So I'm going to pray. We're just going to be quiet for a minute. It'll go right into a response through Psalm. Let's pray.